Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined for this new series of episodes on Jane Austen's book, Sense and Sensibility, by uh, old friend Heidi White and our new friend, Karen Swallow Pryor. Heidi and Karen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. Hello. Karen, you are, I shouldn't, I guess for you, in your case, I shouldn't have said welcome back to the show, but welcome <laughs> to the show. It's, it's a real honor to have you here to discuss this book. And when I came to you and said, would you be interested in doing this? It seems like it's up your alley, having read on reading well. You said, well, it just so happens that I have a project (laughs) that I can't publicly talk about yet, but which is related to this book. And then in the last, what, week to 10 days, that project, I guess, did become public. So it seemed um, like the stars were aligning, so to speak, for you to for you to come on. So we are really excited to have you here. And thanks for taking the time to spend some of your summer vacation with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I'm going to use your audience as, uh, as guinea pigs to talk about Sense and Sensibility and see how the conversation goes since I'll be writing about it soon. So it's a really, it, like you said, the stars really did align. This, this is going to be great. So you are a professor of English at Liberty. You have... Uh, written uh, three books now. Is that correct? You, uh, yes. Books? Yes. So books, The Literature and the Soul of Me came out in 2012. And then Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, a poet, reformer, abolitionist. That's from 2014. And then last year on Reading Well, Finding the Good Through Great Literature. And that's a book that I know uh, many of our listeners are quite familiar with. So what's this new project that you have going on though? That it, Yeah, it's uh, so I will be writing introductions and um, discussion questions all from a Christian worldview perspective uh, in a for a series of six volumes to be published by B and H Publishing, which is um, part of Lifeway, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's complicated, Um, (laughs) uh, and uh, so just classics that that I've selected that I I think uh, readers might be eager to read or reread, but also might um, want to have kind of an introduction from someone um, that they can trust. Hopefully they can trust Mm. me (laughs) and um, from a Christian perspective. Uh, And also um, it's, it's neat for me because I get so many, you know, I have a, have a social media platform um, and I teach, as you mentioned, but teach residentially to pretty Mm. small select classes of English majors, but I've had so many people out there in social media land say, oh, they'd love to take a class with me, or they wish they could have had a class with me. So in a way, um, this is what this uh, this, set, this series will offer, is the opportunity to kind of study a work of literature with me. Um, mm. So it'll be six volumes coming out, out over probably the next three years. Um, I'm slow. I have a day job. <laughs> so well, two books um, a year, that's still pretty solid, I would say. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. And of course, I just have, get to write the introductions. The hard work is already done. Thanks, Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, Sense and Sensibility is the first one coming out, right? That comes out next year? Right. Well, I'm going to, my, the goal is to have uh, two issued at a time. Oh, okay. uh, so this summer I'm working on the introduction to Sense and Sensibility and then Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Mm. And so those two can come out together and then the next two and the next two. Um, so. That's quite a pairing of that books that you're going to be. That is quite a pairing. Um, well, <laughs> as we'll probably be talking about in, yeah. in this episode or coming ones on this novel, um, I actually purposefully was seeking a kind of balance, a kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a book that's considered, it isn't really, but considered kind of a girly girl book. And then a book that's <laughs> considered more of a rough and tumble uh, yeah. book for male readers. Um, I want to, you know, kind of break down some of those walls, um, offer something that's funny and then something that's dark together to balance mm-hmm. each other out. 
So, hmm. well, we definitely please at at any time bring up those that that. Uh, I guess the breaking down of those walls, bring that up as much as you'd like on these, uh, these episodes. Awesome. And anytime you want to talk about heart of darkness as well and do a comp, we're always in favor of comparisons here on the show. So that will be great. Um, so before we dive into our conversation about sense and sensibility, and this week we are going to discuss, um, roughly the first eight chapters and do some, you know, overview introductory type of, um, stuff as well. I need to say a quick word from our friends over at Classical Academic Press. If you are a busy school or homeschool educator who is enthused about the classical tradition of education um, and who maybe wishes you had been classically trained, then Classical U from Classical Academic Press was designed with you in mind. They are confident that this resource will inspire educators in schools, homeschools, and co-ops to dig deep into the richness of learning no matter where you find yourself on your journey in classical education. Discover over 35 self-paced courses with new content regularly added, as well as community forums and recently accredited, uh, recently added accreditation, sorry, through ACSI. So you can begin your journey at classicalu.com and close to these listeners can try Classical U for free through June 29th by visiting classicalu.com slash code. That's like, you know, enter a code, C-O-D-E. And then you can enter the code Cersei Podcast at checkout. So one more time, that is classicalu.com slash code. And then the code itself is Cersei Podcast. You enter that at checkout, you can get access to classical you free through june 29th so that's that's a pretty good deal and there's lots of great courses on there uh we have uh we just um partic- uh, collaborated with them rather to make a course on c.s lewis that uh, andrew kern did so um we are big fans of classical you and our friends over at classic classical academic press so check that out okay sense and sensibility jane austen um before we get into a little bit of background on this novel, I'm curious about your relationships with Jane Austen and with this novel. Karen, you're the guest here. You're, uh, you're new to the show, so I'll turn to you first. Where did you first discover Jane Austen? And did you was it a head over heels and love thing right away? Or did it take some time for you to, to uh, fall in love with her work? That is or at least, a, no, or that, at least well enough, <laughs> enough in love to write it in, to write a whole uh, introduction to her book. Yeah, that is a great question because um, the first time I ever read Jane Austen was in, um, I believe, tenth grade. Uh, it was Pride and Prejudice, mm. yeah. and I had no idea what was going on. I thought it was <laughs> the most boring book that I had ever read, and I didn't understand what it what all of the excitement was about <laughs> and i remember that very vividly and yet i cannot remember um the next time that i read it I'm probably in college mm-hmm. i don't i don't remember um at some point i fell in love with satire which we'll probably talk about later and yeah. uh, it all clicked and i you know i've just loved austin ever since but my first time didn't get didn't have a clue <laughs> didn't appreciate her <laughs> Huh. Did you, so that next time that you read it, you said you weren't sure when it was, but do you remember the experience that second time that you read it? I don't, I don't know when, um, I don't, I, I don't recall the second time reading. Um, so do you remember what you thought of it then? I, you don't remember it at all? Nope. I don't remember it at all. I mean, I, the next memory I have is reading, um, Mansfield park, which was much later and I knew okay. Austin better. Um, yeah. and so then, uh, yeah. Um, I just have that vivid memory from 10th grade. I guess it was, it just stayed in my mind. So fortunately I've I've grown since then. (laughs) Do you remember if there was a point at which you thought, oh, okay, this is good. Do you remember having a epiphany along the way or did did you just look back years later and realize, yeah, you know what? This is, this is one of the greatest novelists ever. Well, I don't, I, I, um, I'm not sure when it was. I know I've actually been teaching Pride and Prejudice, um, in my English novel class for you know, almost 20 years. So by that point, I already had, and I don't teach it every time I teach that class, but, um, it is, it is a staple in it. And, um, so by that time, I mean, I, I knew what it was. I knew why it was important and why it was significant. And so it's been, been quite a while. And, you yeah, know, there's yeah. a reason why I teach that in that particular course. And, um, it's sort of, uh, and, and that's something we'll, we'll probably hit on later. Um, but it's, it's actual place in what's called the rise of the novel it, as that genre developed. Austin, it has like one of the most important places in the development mm. of that genre of literature. Mm. 
and hopefully we'll talk about that at length. Heidi, what about you? Same questions all apply to you here. So including my (laughs) (laughs) follow-ups. I was introduced to Jane Austen through the film, actually through Hmm. the... um, I think it was the, the one BBC nine, version nine, of okay. Pride and Prejudice, actually. That was the first introduction ah, okay, I ever had. Okay. So uh, I grew up in a reading home and we didn't, you know, we weren't a lot. There wasn't really video games back then. Maybe it was like, maybe there was an original Nintendo or something, but it was like the I mean, you're not Nintendo. that old. There was I some know, video I, games. Yes, that's true. <laughs> there was some kind of pushing of buttons that I wasn't allowed to do. And so uh, we were, so my parents let us watch whenever we were allowed to watch something. A lot of it was literary or film adaptations of books. And so I remember watching that really long BBC version of Pride and Prejudice as a child. And, uh, but I didn't actually read the novels until I was in high school. And I, that did not ruin, you know, what's funny, my daughter, Lucy, she's 10. And whenever she sees a movie adaptation of a of a book that she doesn't like. She says it ruins her imagination. So this is oh, the Harry Potter movie ruined my imagination or whatever. Uh, but these, but the, the films did not ruin my imagination for Jane Austen. I thought they were great introduction to Jane. I'm not necessarily advocating it, but it did not undermine my experience of reading the books. In fact, I think it added to it um, mm. to see kind of some of those things come out see some of her wit come out in dialogue. What a challenge for a filmmaker. Um, Mm. So anyway, I read Sense and Sensibility. I think it was the third Jane Austen I read, and I know I read it my junior year in high school. And I liked it. I didn't love it as much as Pride and Prejudice. Now I appreciate it more than I probably did then. I didn't dislike it. I just, you know, there was no Mr. Darcy in it. And I was a (laughs) 16-year-old girl. So so Karen mentioned that she read it when she was in high school and and didn't care for it. So you kind of had the opposite. Yeah, I liked Pride, it. Pride right. I didn't, yes. Oh, I loved Pride and Prejudice. I, you know, okay. I loved it. Um, but to Karen's point, I didn't understand that. I mean, I was reading it for the love story as a, as a teenage girl. I wasn't reading it for the brilliance of the writing or the craft or the, the irony and the wits and the satire. I wasn't, I, it's not necessarily that I didn't get the jokes. I got some of them, but I, I didn't understand the genius of what I was reading. Do any of us even now? Right. Really? Even now. That's so, that's yeah. the truth. How about you, David? Guess- I'm very curious about hmm. your experience with Jane Austen. Oh, well, um, I I know that my first experiences with Jane Austen were watching the BBC Pride and Prejudice uh-huh. and watching the Ang Lee version of Sense and Sensibility when I was pretty young. Uh, well, I guess the Ang Lee one came out in 95. When did the BBC Pride and Prejudice come out? Mid-90s too, right? Probably. I think, I think around 94, the same time. 96, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so I probably saw those. My, those are the kind of movies my family watched. And my, I know my sisters watched Sense and Sensibility over and over and over again. So I saw those multiple times before I ever read the book. So um, I see a lot of um, those actors. I see a lot of Emma Thompson in my imagination when I, uh-huh. read, when I read this book, Kate Winslet and so forth. Um, and I honestly don't know when I first read the books, but I think it actually was in college. Um, being an English major, I think I read I think I read several of her books in college, but I remember, I don't remember reading them in high school. Um, and I wrote, I tended to write down what I wrote. So I don't think I did. Um, and I, um, I think I probably felt, I think I probably appreciated them studying, studying them in college more than I loved them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, um, I, I, I like, I've been thinking about it a lot, trying to figure out what my current feelings are about her work. And I think, I mean, I love the way I love the way she writes. But one of the things that for me, I remember standing out then was the way, she, the way she got into the voice of the characters, and um, she had she had so many different voices in the books. And I that was the thing that stood out to me, and um, still kind of does. That's the kind of the thing that. Um, was most interesting to me. And I, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that as we talk about um, the, the satirical elements. And um, I know there's a lot of things related to that that you, that you want to talk about, Karen. But 
I guess we should do a little bit of background work on this novel. So this, if I'm not, this was written 18, published in 1811, I believe. Um, Karen, if I get any of this wrong, why don't you correct me? Because you're the actual expert here. <laughs> well, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, it was it was originally, according to um, Wikipedia, the title page on the original book just said by a lady, which I find <laughs> interesting. So it's published anonymously. She first started writing it as an epistolary, I read, um, mm-hmm. when she was what? They say around 1920, something like that, I think. Do we know the exact date when she started writing this, Karen? Do you know? Um, she, I think that um, it's around 1790 is when she started writing it. Um, okay. Yeah, it, has a, it, was a long, it took her a long time to write, which is actually kind of encouraging <laughs> to aspiring <laughs> yeah, no writers. Kidding. Yeah. It was originally titled Eleanor and Marianne, and then she, you know, she ultimately changed it before she published it. She actually paid to have the book published and I believe paid the publisher herself commission on sales and it cost more than one third of the Austin's annual household income. That's another Wikipedia thing that I discovered. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, I suppose. Um, And she made a profit of 140 pounds, which would be 5,000 pounds today. Uh, They sold 750 copies on the first run. Um... So at this point, I'm just getting into trivia. So we can we, we can move on. But um, does this this was her first novel that was published, right? Is that is that correct? correct? So do you see do you see it as being weaker than most of her other work? Given that, um, I it it is weaker. Um, it's it's less mature for sure. Um, and you know when we get to those parts later in the book that's something i'll 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 mention you know some of the um some melodrama that would which which is actually one of the objects of satire um in yeah, in her right. other works and so it is weaker but in that regard i think it, it when when you read it you can kind of get a better understanding of the kind of things she's doing in all of her works and ultimately in you know in a more nuanced way what what do you think about her works in the time that it came out? And Heidi, I'll ask you, I've got a question for you in a second. But what do you think... Um, th- this was a book that was relatively successful, as I mentioned, uh, when it first came out. But it, there are these satirical elements to it. And so at the time that it came out, did people recognize that satire and that's what made it um, well-loved? Or what do you think made it loved in the time that it came out as opposed to today? Right. Well, in the time that Austin was writing, I mean, satire was much better understood and appreciated. Um, I mean, she she's mm. interesting. She's writing within what's technically the Romantic period, but is not really Romantic with a capital R. Mm-hmm. So uh, people would have, even people who were responding against or reacting against the satire of the neoclassical age that Austin represents more than than romanticism i mean everyone would have known people would have basically have been for satire or against it um and uh yes i mean satire was just and and humor and comedy were um were just part of the culture so they would have definitely understood it better that i think than most readers today Hmm. do you do a lot of i mean when you start teaching this book and say when you're working on your introduction do you start by by talking about the satirical elements or do you, do you dive into it and then allow the satirical elements to sort of come to the surface? I actually, uh, when I, when I teach the novel, there are two things I do when I teach the novel. Um, One is um, I present, you know, we study the novels chronologically. And so we study, uh, we we first read um, what's considered the work by the person called the father of the English novel, Samuel Richardson, um, who wrote Pamela, uh, which is a very earnest and book about <laughs> virtue. And you talk about that in On Reading Well, Yes, right? I do. That's one of the yes. chapters. In there, yeah. um, and it's an epistolary book, you know, and you mentioned that already, that Sense and Sensibility started out that way. Richardson is clearly one major influence on Austen. But the next novel that responded, that was published um, as a really uh, a protest against Richardson's Pamela was Tom Jones's um, Henry Fielding's History of Tom Jones, which is very satirical and very comic. And so when we we next in in my course read Pride and Prejudice by Austin, I present 
Austin and um, that novel as a sort of synthesis to the uh, to Richardson and Fielding's sort of thesis and antithesis. Um, so mm-hmm. Austin basically she takes this literary history that she you know, of works that she has read that are part of her culture that everyone who is literary new, and she takes the best elements of each in her work. That's why we have some romance and we have a, a high emphasis on virtue, but we also get the satire and the comedy too, because she, she took the best from the two best writers before her and, and really finessed this newly developing form known as the novel. So, you know, we start out with that, but I, um, I also make clear from the beginning that it, it's that Austin's, you know, it, it is a satirist. Um, it's really important when people read Pride and Prejudice that they know that uh, when when she says it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man with a fortune must be in want of search of a wife, um, that people know that's not Austin's view. Um, that she's presenting that she's satirizing that view, which represents not only Mrs. Bennett's view, um, but really the prevailing view of most people in that society um, about about the role of marriage and, and the prospects for women. Um, and so I think it's important. I, I think you miss so much if we don't start out right from the beginning saying this is a comedy of manor- manners, it's satire, um, and here's how we read it. Hmm. I mentioned um, a few minutes ago that one of the things that I liked was the way she um, plays with point of view and the characters' perspectives and and voice the characters' voices because it seems to me that that's one of the ways that the satire comes out a little bit. You mentioned the opening of Pride and Prejudice, and sh- there are so many times when some action happens or some interaction happens, and then you get inside some character's head and they say something ridiculous, and you could easily read it as you know Jane Austen making some kind of serious comment, but it seems like it, it by using by getting inside those characters' heads and kind of playing with their um, their perspectives, using their perspectives, that's where the satire is really able to come out. Would you say that that's a fair assessment or am I reading, or, or would you say that you shouldn't, that each, that, that each of those perspectives are kind of, she's kind of actually throwing them away and just focusing in on being satirical herself. Does that make sense what I'm asking? I've never thought about the question before. <laughs> yeah. so no, it, it makes, and I, I really, I don't want to monopolize this conversation. So yeah, I've got something for Heidi <laughs> okay, in a second. Okay. Sorry. Heidi. So, um, no, this is actually one of the most important tools or techniques that she uses is that it's called, um, free indirect discourse where she present. And now this can, you know, it can be done. That can be used ironically or sympathetically. Um, so free and direct discourse is basically when that third person, you know, that, um, that outside third person narrator, um, steps inside as you, as you put it in, inside a, a character's, um, mind and thoughts and there. So therefore the thoughts are presented, that character's thoughts are presented, but not in quotation marks, that would be direct discourse. So, right, and right. so that's the indirect part, but the free part uh, the free indirect discourse refers to the narrators kind of slipping in and out of one perspective and another. So you have to constantly be like, oh, wait, whose perspective is this from? And, 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 and be in tune to that because you cannot read it in a flat kind of, this is Jane Austen talking all the time, or even in reading Pride and Prejudice, I keep using that. This is the most well-known example. Um, even though most of the story is told through the perspective of, of Elizabeth Bennett, much of it is not. So we can't even say, oh, it's Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bennett's perspective because the free mm. part of the free and direct discourse means that narrator is slipping in and out of other people's perspectives. Um, and it's mm. a form of irony um, mm. in that regard, because irony is always about some, you know, double vision or double perspective. Um, and uh, so, so that's why that opening line is a great example of irony. Um, but it can be more, more subtle than that. And that double perspective, not to get too far ahead, but which is <laughs> how all irony works is it's amazing because it, it requires a person, whether the narrator or the reader or just in real life in general to recognize multiple points of view. 
So there's an empathy mm. there. There's an understanding there. So it's not just about mockery. It actually means, although sometimes it is that, but it actually <laughs> means that this per like, I get you, I understand you. And here's your perspective, which by the way, happens to be really different from mine, but I can see it. It's just, it's so powerful. Okay. I'm going to stop now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Heidi, I was, I found myself as I was reading it this time, marking all the times when I, when I found these spots where it seemed like there was this ironic point of view happening here, mm-hmm. um, and, and this uh, this discourse, as, as Karen just put it, when you when you were reading it or as you've read it over the years, do you find the slipping in and out of those perspectives? As, do you find that to be confusing, or do you find it to be fun? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe both. It's a good what's your What's the reading experience like? Because I was thinking about this. If, I was thinking about if I was teaching this book, and I've never taught this this Austin book, but I was thinking about the ways that you'd have to find tools for helping, especially younger high school students, unpack that. Like almost like there's a puzzle going on, right? A pu- that you're well, a puzzle that you're kind of putting together or not putting together, I suppose. So, do you find it fun or do you find it confusing? What's your experience like with that? I with that. Discourse? I find it delightful, just absolutely delightful, because it's almost as if you know, and Karen referred to this double perspective and kind of an irony in general is when the reader, the audience knows more than the people in the story. And that's, that's a fun experience. I, I, it's, I think it's pure delight. It's almost like she's winking at us a little bit Hmm. sometimes, right? Like this, um, on, on my version, I have the penguin classics version and on page 17 at the bottom, there's this, um, description of, of, uh, Edward Ferris and his family's hopes and dreams for him, right? They wanted him to make a fine figure in the world in some manner or other. His mother wished to interest him in political concerns, to get him into parliament, or to see him connected with some of the great men of the day. Mrs. John Dashwood wished it likewise. But in the meanwhile, till one of these superior blessings could be attained, mm-hmm. it would have quieted her ambition to see him driving a brush. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's just an absolutely brilliant sentence. It clips off at the end at the funniest part and it, it lets you know, right? It isn't that the, it, it, here's what it communicates. These people are ambitious, but not because they expect or want greatness from him, but because they're petty and because they're greedy and because they're self, right? So that's, it, it, you, she's winking at you. It makes you laugh. It's hilarious. It's brilliantly written. But there's also a pointed satirical reference mm. there that communicates something very important about these characters and the kind of society they live in. And I mean, Austin's full of that. And I think especially at the beginning of this book, which, as Karen pointed out, is in some ways a bit weaker on the literary side, especially at the beginning. Um, that when you do get those like little tags of, of satire and wit and irony, um, they're just purely delightful. Yeah, but you left off the best line in the whole paragraph. The paragraph ends hilariously. Oh, yes. All right. But Edward, but Edward had no turn for great men or barouches. All his wishes centered on domestic comfort and the quiet of private life. And then it says, <laughs> fortunately, we get some opinion here of the, the perspective. Fortunately, he had a younger brother who was more promising. <laughs> excited to find out what becomes of this young man. (laughs) And and you can see, though, what a grave error would be made by a reader who equated those descriptions with Austin's worldview and the the idea she's promoting, right? right? So you really have to be in tune to it. That's really true. Well, and I think I I taught Emma to a, or not really taught, I did a book club of Emma with young women in middle school two years ago. And it was a disaster because they didn't get it. And Emma is hilarious. Mm-hmm. But these young ladies, they're really intelligent young women, had been classical education. I've been teaching them for years. And I thought, oh, we'll read some we'll read some books by we'll read some books together. So we did something I can't remember we did Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I think. And then we read Emma and they did not get it. They just thought it was boring. And, mm. and so I, th- and we, we quit in the middle. Um, mm. cause I said, I don't want you to miss out on Austin. Mm-hmm. Like, and you need to come back to her. So let's just put this off. And so I think in some, some of it is a lack of education as you're pointing out. And some of it is that it takes, you have to be 
you have to have a mind equal to Jane Austen, even to read Jane Austen in some sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It takes some work on the part, but it's good. It's good work. It's fun work. But you know, you're you're yeah, wading through yeah. this language and the complicated, more complicated sentence structure and syntax, and um, that's not modern. And so, once you get there, but once you're you know keep at it, once you get into it, it's just really fun. But you do you it it takes a mind to read Austin. Now, did you at least show th- them Clueless? We did not. <laughs> I did not show them Clueless. Oh, I guess I guess that wouldn't go over very well in a classic Christian school. But it, you I know, it's a pretty Clueless. <laughs> it's a Middle great school. one. I think Clueless is hilarious. <laughs> so I, I keep checking back in with these girls. We're gonna you're gonna go back to Austin. Just give it a couple of years. <laughs> I, I was struck um, reading a little bit more this morning about how much. Uh, it felt like reading Woodhouse at times. Mm. You know, there's that line in chapter six where they're talking about the cottage and they move they move into uh, Barton Cottage and it says something like, as a cottage, it was defective. The window yes. shutters were not painted green, <laughs> nor were the walls covered with honeysuckles. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it sounded exactly like something Bertie Wooster would complain about, you know, through the narration in one of his novels. Um, and do you, so do you think either of you, do you think that she is actively, is she actively trying to be comical, to be funny? Or is she, or is that just kind of, well, there's going to be a fine line, I guess, in what I'm asking. Or is that just kind of naturally coming out because she's being, she her her goal is to be satirical? No, I, I mean, I, I really do try to avoid um, the intentional fallacy and talk about authorial intent, but we know enough about Austin's, um, you know, her earlier works, her letter writing, her life and literary history to know she's clearly, she knows what she's doing. Um, again, she's writing in a tradition of satire, um, a tradition specifically within satire called the comedy of manners, um, which is basically um, the satir, the, the, the ridicule of the manners and customs of upper class people. Um, and so that's a, a tradition that she knows and she's writing into. And so, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to be ironic without knowing that you're being ironic. And again, the, that goes back to that yeah, sophistication yeah. of having that double vision where you know what you're view and perspective is, but you also know what the opposite one is and you can express both in one, in one way. And that, that passage that you just read, I had marked because it's such a great example, not only of comedy and irony, but her specific, you know, the specific target of satire throughout this work, uh, which we'll be, I'm sure talking about more, which is romanticism, right? Mary, whether it's Marianne's romanticism or just in general, this idea that, um, you know, that a cottage is only wonderful if it has, you know, because it's being climbed by honeysuckle. Um, and which, by the way, the honeysuckle around here at my house is like overwhelming all of my plants. It's really bad. So I, <laughs> I, I, I really yeah, think I, your house is not deficient as a cottage. So you're <laughs> that's, that's yeah. true. That's true. Well, assuming you have green shutters. <laughs> no, it's deficient. <laughs> I think the only people who really like honeysuckle are six-year-old children who want to just eat it. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, at least maybe that's maybe that's just my children. I don't know. Um, one of the, the best passages, or one of my favorite passages, was in chapter eight when they're talking about when uh, Marianne and Mrs. Dashwood and, and Eleanor are talking about Colonel Brandon. Mm, uh, I actually post took a picture of it and I posted it on the Close Reads Instagram page. They're talking about um, his rheumatism <laughs> and and uh, whether someone who a woman who's what over what is it over twenty seven <laughs> would could could what did what does it say could marry um, for anything other than for could yeah, marry could, yeah, for love or ardor yes yeah anything anything other than as a commercial exchange <laughs> do you do you think that and then and then the passage ends with one of my very favorite lines where. Um, she says, I must object to your dooming Colonel Brandon and his wife to the constant confinement of a sick chamber <laughs> merely because he chanced to complain yesterday, a very cold, damp day, of a slight rheumatic feel in one of his shoulders. And then Marianne, who basically has no response to that, just says, but he talked of flannel waistcoats. <laughs> I know. She always has something 
you know, to complain about, 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 mm-hmm. about this guy. And so it got me thinking about how we're supposed to uh, respond or maybe even feel about these characters. And I was wondering, especially in these early chapters, as she's setting the mm-hmm. stage for this novel, are we supposed to look at someone like Eleanor and Marianne and see them as, you know, sort of an early conflict that their personalities, their differences are one of the early conflicts in this novel and that we're supposed to root for one and kind of look down on the other. Does that, does that come out for either of you? Heidi, what do you think about that? And then I'll let Karen correct you. Well, right. Um, <laughs> I will relish the opportunity to be corrected by Karen Swallow prior. Um, I, I struggle with the supposed to question. I, Fair I think that there is a very clear um, contrast between these young women closely, uh, excuse me, so, so near to the beginning of the novel. It's very clear. These are two different kinds of people. And that Marianne is uh, dismissive um, and maybe even a little judgmental of her sister. And yet the thing about them is that they have this beautiful connected relationship. Mm. And so... Um, so you're saying they're sisters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that it is also very clear that in spite of the fact that Marianne um, is full of sensibility and her sister is sense, although throughout the, the, the story that they, they mesh together, it, we, I, I do not meant, think that we are meant to see them as two separate, um, as, as if Marianne has no sense and Eleanor has no sensibility. It's very, she even says, Austin even says that Eleanor is full of feeling. She just knows how to restrain it. And so she does hold Eleanor up as a model from the beginning and lets us see a little bit of Marianne's um, kind of the risk that she takes by, by her feel. But she portrays both of them, I think, very positively. And so I don't know that we're supposed to see one as good as, and one as bad from the beginning, um, but the, the differences between them are pretty clear. Karen, what do you think? Is there is there a sense in which early in this novel that she's creating a divide between them, or where we almost have to choose one or the other? Because I found myself instinctively wanting to, feeling like I had to choose, mm-hmm. and that's I'm a hundred percent willing to say that that's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, I this it's I, I'm not going to disagree with anything that Heidi said. I'm just I, maybe I just a little bit different angle. I think um, again, and this is part of Austin's brilliance. So mm-hmm. so. It, the title is Sense and Sensibility. And in the time that she's writing, those are two ideas, concepts that are have basically become schools of thought, even cults. There was a cult mm-hmm. of sensibility in the 18th century. So mm. the title alone would, would speak to people based on which one they already preferred. So, so Austin's writing to a, an audience of readers you know, in, in this transition, uh, well, right in the middle of the Romantic period to so this transition from neoclassicism to Romanticism, um, and, you know, and the neoclassicism would be aligned with sense and Romanticism with sensibility. So her readers would have had a predisposition toward one or the other already, just mm-hmm. one of those concepts. And even today, when um, I teach oh. this novel, which I don't teach as often as Pride and Prejudice, um, I, I see that readers are already predisposed to like Marianne better or to like Eleanor better. Um, guess who I like from the beginning? <laughs> Eleanor. She's my favorite <laughs> of all of Austin's characters. I love her so much. Really? Oh, Interesting. Yes. Um, hmm. I am Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eleanor, c'est moi, as Flaubert would say. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, but I agree with what Heidi said. We are the error that that uh, that Austin is ultimately satirizing and 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 writing against is the lack of moderation in any way. So being either entirely sense or entire sensibility. So so we're she knows. I think Austin knows we're predisposed to favor one of these. Um, qualities over the other but we're really not supposed to choose either one we're supposed to be to balance and to to be virtuous which is to moderate the two extremes right well and Mm -hmm. i i agree with that and i i think it's we as modern readers i i find in talking to people 
about this novel, how much people, this is overgeneralizing, but I've had several conversations in the last week in which people have said, I don't like Eleanor. She's too restrained. I think Marianne is my favorite character. I know. Full of life and vivacity mm-hmm. and she's so vibrant. And there's there's even a line and I can't remember if it's in what we what we read this week, um, in which Eleanor and Marianne are talking and oh, it's when Willoughby comes along. So we're looking in the future, but something when somebody says Marianne isn't vivacious, she is just full of these romantic sentiments. But the modern perception of her is this like young mm-hmm. woman full of life and and then poor Eleanor who can't ever express her feelings mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. so restrained. And and so that, that would not have been the way that Austin's audience read this novel. And I think what you're right. bringing up is really, really important. Right, and because, because Austin, but Austin predicted where romanticism leads right so mm. so she was ahead of her time in that in that sense because you're absolutely right most people are team marianne today right um, and yeah mm. it's again austin's brilliance yep and it endures in all it's, these generations i mean it's mm-hmm. still so popular austin is remains enduringly popular for lots of reasons i think um but but it's read differently in different generations based on whether that particular generation is more of a sense generation or a sensibility one and so there is a uh i don't know that i think there's a conflict between those two concepts but most people tend to pick a lane on one and neglect the other and i think that's what Austin is in some sense trying to point to. And in making them sisters, I mean, it's not an allegory, but in making them sisters, I think that's an important part of this. She gives them a relationship of mutual love, admiration, and respect. And and that relationship Mm -hmm. endures throughout the novel. And I think that's important. The conflict is not between the two of them. It's how they interact in the world. Yes, very well put. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I so I, I when my question wasn't necessarily meant to say that you know the sort of central conflict of the book was between the two right. of them. Yeah, I that's think not what you said. I think what I was getting at is there's this sense. I mean, no pun intended. There's this sense <laughs> that um, and a sensibility. <laughs> that, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that uh, that I like. I said I, I had I instinctively was feeling like I had to sort of respect one and look down on the other, and I think. I think she does that a lot with characters in her books and it's not just the two of them. It's there's all these, she's, she's constantly drawing comparisons between characters. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's constantly giving us these sort of, you know, part of the ironic perspective that she offers is these descriptions of people. Right. Um, and sometimes it's an idea, the the ideal man type perspective, right? (laughs) Like, um, there's the, uh, who was it that he's describing as, or she's describing as, uh, it's in four. Was it that would be Edward? But it says that oh, um, his yes. mind is well informed, his enjoyment of books exceedingly great, his imagination lively, his observation just and correct, and his taste delicate and pure. His abilities in every respect improve as much upon acquaintance as his manners in person. Um, at first, his sight is his at first sight his address is certainly not striking, and his person can hardly be called handsome till the expression of his eyes, which are uncommonly good, and the general sweetness of his countenance is perceived. And so she she's then the next scene you'll see someone where she's describing another man or someone and it, it's almost like a counter description. Mm. And so it seems like, you know, she'll put, you know, <clears throat> she'll put Lizzie and Darcy. It seems like you're putting them up against each right. other, but it's not just the two of them. And it seems like on the surface, she's inviting you to instinctively choose one or the other, because then when you do that, you almost see the error of your ways mm-hmm. 25 pages or 100 pages later. Yeah, which, I mean, it's a similar thing uh, in Pride and Prejudice, which, is, again, is a helpful model for us to see how our technique works because because throughout most of the novel, you know, this is sort of cliche, but we think it's Darcy he's, who's proud, you know, and then, right, and right. then it's, you know, the others who are prejudiced, but it, tur- it turns out that... Uh, Elizabeth is actually proud. Um, and so right. they, they kind of, it's, it's right. not a clear dichotomy. It's like, it's a mixture as we all are mixed in that way. So, oh, yeah, but it's, and, and so I've, whenever I read Jane Austen, I feel myself almost being corrected. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because of the irony or because of the satire that, I mean, I guess that's the point, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I find myself making some choice and then later on realizing that I made the wrong choice. Mm. Does that has that happened to you when you either of you when you've read her books? Maybe it's just something about me that I'm yeah, that's the exact all you, audience David. she was no, writing. 
<laughs> no, no, I, I think, that's yeah, that's what she wants. I, I mean, I think she sets us up to do that because she's p- painting mm-hmm. complicated characters and preying on kind of our own natural inclinations um, and then exposing that later on in some way. Right. I, so I read that sometimes her books, or I've read, I, ha- I have read from critics and I even heard professors in college say that sometimes they feel like her books lack empathy. Um, that sometimes they're a little harsh towards characters such as the mother, was it the mother in Pride and Prejudice? Mrs. Um, Bennett. Oh. Yeah, Mrs. Bennett. So I, do, do, you, um, do you agree with that? I think, I think that's ridiculous. I, I think that there is, in, in modernity, there is a desire hmm. to always defend every everybody like you're not allowed to kind of put any characters into a box and say that person is petty or small-natured or whatever you have to give them like some kind of tragic backstory that explains their um selfishness or whatever whatever it is um i do think in austin there the nature of satire Mm -hmm. is that you are mocking something that mm-hmm. you're pointing out the foibles uh, the, the, and the failures in some kind of system. And in most cases in novels, that system is going to be represented by a character, right? Um, that, that character becomes the representation of whatever the follies and foibles of a certain kind of uh, societal system or flaw or whatever it represents. And so um, in that sense, yeah, there's, there's a lack of empathy, if you want to call it that, because we're supposed to laugh at it. We're supposed to mm-hmm. find it ridiculous. We're supposed to say there's something wrong with that. Um, so uh, I, I think that there's several flaws in that particular argument. Karen, do you agree yeah, with no, that? No, I, I, I agree. And I think, I mean, we do live in an age that um, does not like correction. And so that is by nature what satire does is it corrects something. Um, and it does so through irony or mockery. Um, but, you know, one of the, and I think I talk about this a, a little bit on Reading Well, so I guess I'm quoting myself. But um, one of the things that, uh, so the greatest... Um, the greatest English satirist is Jonathan Swift, and he wrote what's considered right. very bitter satire. Um, and he was acu- he's accused of being um, a misanthrope, of hating mankind because he writes so bitterly about them. But the fact is that, I mean, a, a satirist, a satirist, you don't correct if you don't care. Um, and you don't correct if you don't actually believe that people can improve and be corrected. So it might seem harsh, but it, it, you know, it's like the, it, it's cruel to be kind. Satire is kind of the opposite of that. It's kind to correct and to chasten. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, even, the, even the Bible talks about that, that God chastens those whom he loves. And I think the satirist works the same way. It just doesn't always feel like that. Mm-hmm. Plus, we're also de- dealing with a hierarchical system um, within the within Regency England, and so there's there's going to be consequences to um, you know. I'm thinking of Lydia in Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. when she makes the choice to lose her virtue to an unworthy man. The consequences she faces are absolutely lifelong for that. There is not, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's doing like a Facebook fundraiser to restore <laughs> her <laughs> reputation or whatever. Like there's like, that's, that is also the nature of a hierarchical society within which she is writing. And a lot of modern sensibilities, there's that word, are going to resist <laughs> that idea. And I think that's why Jane Austen is not only more necessary, but also more popular than ever. Because in spite of the fact that we're trying to throw all that stuff out, we crave it. We desire that. And so people keep reading Jane Austen. And we still have hierarchies. We just, they're not necessarily yep. social, social or economic, but boy, we have hierarchies and, and they can be harder to navigate even than, than such clearly marked rigid ones as in Austen society. Right. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the wh- What do you think of the mother character in this book compared to the one in in uh, Pride and Prejudice or even in her other work? There's a there's a a sort of common theme in her work is the fraud relationship between mothers and daughters it seems. Mm-hmm. Um and I was wondering if and, and to some degree, fathers and sons, actually. Um, and and that, that all ties into this sort of 
concept of hierarchy and the and and from the very first page of chapter one in this book, the theme of hierarchy is is immediately brought up right like who's going to inherit this house who gets to have control of the money who gets who's going to help whom who gets to kick who out all these questions of you know the inheritance and all that they come up right away and so there's these fraught relationships between the mothers and the daughters the fathers and the sons and so forth do you think that in this book early on anyway i i don't we we can't really talk about it as within the context of the whole book yet but early on do you, do you, I mean, do you, I, well, another, another caveat, I suppose, is that, um, I, I'd be curious to know what someone who's read this for the, is reading this for the first time would think of, of this idea. Huh. I found the mother, having not read it for a long time, I found the mother to be, um, pushed around a little mm-hmm. bit. That's, mm-hmm. that's what my instinct mm-hmm. was. And so I was wondering if, if Jane Austen, Trying to trying to think of how I again I hadn't thought about this ahead of time. Logan, you may want to take this out and make me sound better. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you think that Austin is is trying to put? Well, do you think the book the book puts the the mother in conflict with the daughters and f- thus forcing us to, to choose sides? I, I'm ca- mm-hmm. I've been caught up, I guess, by the the question of she seems like she's putting all these these triangles and um, these mm-hmm. triangles of people and these pairs of people up against mm-hmm. each other, and it's in my instinct, and I don't know exactly why. I'm trying to work through that <laughs> as a reader is to say that she's asking us to figure out who it is that we want to be the protagonist in this huh. novel, and if, and the mother seems like she's caught in between a lot of those a lot of those questions. So I'm trying to figure out how Jane Austen or how the novel itself feels about her because it seems like she is in some ways um, someone who around whom much of the action and eventually some of the actual conflict seems to be generated. Mm-hmm. I don't know what my question was. Well, I, just I kept I, talking. To, to your <laughs> editor there, I just want to say, uh, and to you, um, I think like trying to figure out even what the good questions are is one of the most important parts of reading. So like, you know, mm-hmm. working through like what, what are the questions I'm supposed to be asking is good. And you've modeled that well. So, I mean, that's, no, <laughs> I mean, but really that's, that's, it, it's, uh, I, I'm working my way toward a question too. I mean, I think Mrs. Dashwood is clearly presented sympathetically, at least in the beginning. And I, mm-hmm. and it's interesting mm-hmm. because in Pride and Prejudice, yeah, we yeah. have a similar kind of situation. I mean, Austin is almost always railing against, you know, this system that deprives women of property and money uh, apart from marriage. Um, and but in this novel, we open on that note, right? I mean, it's just it's a very dramatic kind of opening where these two deaths suddenly leave these four women. You know, Mrs. Dashwood and her three daughters. We don't get a lot about Margaret, mm-hmm. but. It's important to remember that there is that third one, um, you know, in this really vulnerable position and that, and that does end up harming them. Um, I mean, clearly Mrs. Dashwood is more like Marianne, or I should say Marianne is more like Mrs. Dashwood um, in her, her, you know, being more sensible, like having more sensibility than sense. Um, but I think there's, that's how Austin is complicated. Even though she has these two sort of dichotomies, they're never that clear. They're, there's always a lot of overlap and a lot of one becoming the other. And maybe Mrs. Dashwood um, helps to complicate that. What could be just sort of a black and white picture in less skilled hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Maybe I think that's true. Do you see her? So I have a follow-up question to your question. Um, David, do you see her as being as manipulating and creating triangles or kind of revealing ones that are already there mm-hmm. or like what kind of what's who, 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 who's your, who's she? Mrs. Dashwood. Oh, um, no, no, I don't think that I'm saying that I, <clears throat> that I think she's being manipulative. I mean, it seems like she's being manipulated mm-hmm. in some ways, at least by Fanny, um, or at least her circumstances are. Um, I, I don't think, I guess I wasn't saying that she was unsympathetic in, in sort of the same way that sometimes Mrs. Um, 
Bennett can, Absolutely. can come across early Yeah, from the very beginning well. of Pride and Prejudice, you know exactly how to feel about Mrs. Bennett. Here we have a character that's I mean, ambiguous is too strong of a word, but she's very human, right? So going mm-hmm. to respond yeah. to her in a different, you know, everybody's going to respond to her a little bit differently. Now, I can I, I don't, you know, I don't know how much time we have. I do want to say, um, I think Mrs. It. Bennett is, and this is something I talk about when I teach the novel, because she's so easy to, to hate and disdain. But I, you know, I think Mrs. I mean, Mrs. Bennett is who she is because of kind of the cultural forces and the, and the society, but also Mr. Bennett, I, I, I love talking about, I mean, you know, Austin, Austin was a Christian mm-hmm. um, and she, you know, her father was a clergyman. She knew Christianity. She knew what biblical marriage is. And Mr. Bennett did not present his bride as someone clean and spotless before the world. I So Mr. Bennett has some culpability for rein, in reinforcing kind of his wife's worst fears and, and qualities. And so it's a, it, to me, it's a, yeah, it's a picture of, of how marriage is not supposed to be. Um, and, and I, mm. so I, I feel, I feel a little bit, I don't know if that's just me um, or I, if Austin, you know, if she is presenting Mrs. Bennett as a, as more sympathetic than, than kind of the surface level reading of her. Right. Right. I, I think that w- one of the things that is a neat, I don't know, trick, so to speak of Pride and Prejudice is that you, at the beginning of the novel, as Heidi says, you, you kind of, look down at her, especially if it's the first time you read it mm-hmm. or, or she's a new character to you. you. You kind of laugh at her and shake your head at her. And then as the novel goes along, I think what you're describing there you, it comes out a little bit more and you begin to gain some sympathy for her as the novel goes along. And, and you begin to realize, oh, well, Mr. Bennett was not exactly, mm-hmm. you know, he may have made life a little difficult for her too. And that might be part of the problem. Right. Here. I agree. Well, and I think that you see kind of a, uh, a similar kind of thing going on in Sense and Sensibility when, you know, at a time before psychology was even a word in the English language, you have Mm. an explanation for the younger generation of characters found in that older generation. That happens in, you look at the dynamic with, uh, with Jane and with Elizabeth Bennett, and you can look at their parents' marriage and the dynamic of their home and the pressures of the society and money and the hierarchy and all the stuff we talked about. And you can see how these girls turned out the way they did, right? They're, um, and, and that same thing I think happens here. When you have this woman, Mrs. Dashwood, who is more like her younger daughter, um, more indulgent towards the, some of those sensibilities that could have been corrected, and the older sister, Eleanor, who she is put into this position in which she has to be kind of the wise, steadying, forward-thinking uh, presence in this family. And that's pretty consistent with uh, the way families work. Right, uh, especially in the face of a trauma or a loss like they've just gone through, and so I, I've always wondered at the beginning of this novel um, whether what they had just been through kind of more fully entrenched these two girls hmm. Um, hmm. and kind of these into yeah, their roles. into these events mm-hmm. within yeah. their mm-hmm. families, especially with such a mother hmm. who's not she's not bad, she's not manipulative. I think she's delightful, but she is you know, she's not a strong character and so she's not the one who's going to say okay girls we have we have to build a life like we are you know gather around and and I'm going to lead us through this right that's kind of falls to Eleanor which gives Marianne then more more freedom to be kind of a little bit lost in her sensibilities Hmm. that's very insightful I agree well, we've gone over an hour now. We've gone over. What? Our time. We just started. So we just—it's been five minutes. <laughs> so much for chapter one. Now on to chapter two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, um, let's. I guess. I guess that I. I guess we have to turn to some final thoughts here for this episode. So, as we go into, I mean, we'll talk about. I'm sure, we'll we'll be jumping around a lot as we get in deeper into the book, um, and be and be easier for us to to look back on earlier chapters um, and also to talk more about flannel waistcoats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, 
Heidi, do you have any final thoughts? And then Karen, I'll turn to you. Um, in particular, maybe what are some of the things that you're looking for? What are some of the questions that you're asking? Uh, hopefully asking a little better than I asked my last <laughs> question. Um, and what are some of the things that have your attention as you're going to be uh, moving on from you know into chapter nine and beyond? Sure. Uh, I think as we're coming, you pointed out earlier in the episode, David, that we are, we're looking at the the beginning portion, kind of this establishing of characters in the situation. By the time we get to chapter eight, where we ended, we know that we, um, that we have these two young and beautiful girls who are of good character. And in a novel like this, we can expect them to have to go through some trials and tribulations on the question of love. And so as we head into kind of this next phase of the novel, that's what we're looking for. What's that going to be like? And how will what we know about their sense and their sensibility uh, and the context of the society that we've seen so far, how is we, we can expect that that will um, play a role in their destiny. So I'm going to be looking for those kinds of things. And obviously we've, probably most of us and our readers have all of us in our readers have read this, but uh, just in terms of the craft of a novel, that's very brilliantly done on Austin's part. And I'm noticing just a shift, even as we get a little further into a couple of chapters, that that the language is becoming more witty and mm. um, and and kind of finding a voice. Like as I was reading, I hadn't read this in several years, and so in the first couple of chapters, I was like, "Where's all the wit?" And then. There's just some glimpses of it, like a few stray yeah, sentences yeah. or, or, but, but as we're in now starting in starting where we're at now, it starts to get just like really, really funny. So I'm glad we talked about the satire and the irony. Karen, what about you? Yeah, I think um, based on really just this conversation, what I'm going to start looking for more is um, the way that Austin kind of sets us up to make judgments about mm-hmm. like, Oh, this person's character is like this and this character is like that. The way she sets us yeah. up, but then the way that she complicates it or tricks us, you know, or, or mitigates that sort of stereotype or that um, category that we put someone in, because I, I think that's part of her brilliance too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to be looking at, yeah. at the ways that she, particularly with the two main characters, Eleanor and Marianne, but um, in other characters as well. Yeah, I love the idea that she sets us up to make a, a, a you know, a, have a, a have an opinion or make a choice about about a character, and then says eh, maybe you should, <laughs> you know, maybe not, maybe not that, maybe that, maybe right. you're wrong. Um, so it takes it takes for to do that successfully and not be obvious or to see it coming takes real mm-hmm. skill. And it's amazing how young she was when she wrote this. I mean, it took her a long time, but when she started writing it, she was a teenager, mm-hmm. right. um, and. You know, so there was whatever was there, those seeds, there was that seed of genius when she was a teenager. So that makes me feel great about myself. (laughs) Once you're not a teenager anymore, Uh, David, you're going to write some great novels. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what I said when I was, you know, 18. And then I said the same thing when I was 22 and 25 and, you know, so on, 30, so (laughs) on, so forth. Um, Well, thanks to you both for for a good conversation. Um, I think this is going to be really fun. As we move forward, we will be able to... We won't have as much introductory stuff. We won't have the... uh you know, the introductor, the introductions of ourselves. And we'll be able to dive right into the text, I think, a little bit more and read, you know, more of those witty lines. Um, Karen, I do have a question for you. Do you have, for our listeners, as, as a teacher of this book and someone who's working on the introduction and reading it closely and has notes and all that kind of stuff, do you have any tips for just the skill of reading this book? Things to look out for specifically, uh, approaches to reading it that you, you've that you've developed or anything like that over the years? Um, I really just think one of the things that we talked about is just looking for those, the way that Austin uses language to portray uh, the, the thoughts and perspective of, of another character. To me, that's, that's the most important thing. And the thing that you actually do have to look for how she switches in and out. Um, and, you know, it's, as I've been noting my copy um, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, if one of her earliest works is a little bit more basic, um, she does oftentimes the paragraphs begin by, you know, naming the character. Um, and then it's clear that what follows comes from that character's perspective. So it's really not that hard, but it just is something, uh, something to watch for. 
Um, to me, that's yeah. It still takes some yes, attention. Yes, exactly. So that's I think yeah. that's the thing that I would look for the most. And then again, the way that the way that our own expectations and judgments, um, our own pride and prejudices, <laughs> are going to be challenged um, in our in the mm. the first judgment, whatever the first judgments we make about a character situation, um, how those might change later on. All right. Well, thank you. And thanks also, of course, to Classical Academic Press for, for sponsoring and making the show possible this month. Remember, you can head over to classicalu.com slash code and enter the code Cersei podcast to get Classical U free through June 29th. So thanks to them and to all of our friends over at Classical Academic Press. And with that, uh, for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads. We'll talk to you next week and happy reading. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.